Lord, as we come to your word, help us to learn from it as we've prayed, as we've prayed that the world would know because of what we are doing as a church. We pray also that we would be instructed, that we would know more and more about you as we come to your word. Teach us from it, convict us of our sins where they are so that we might more and more serve you and glorify you. Lord, train us up in godliness as we will learn from this text. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so one of the things that I thought about, we, you know, Murray High started this week, uh, as most of us know, and one of the things that I do every year is I show my students this video. Who is, uh, it's a TED Talk, and it's by a lady named Angela Duckworth, and she uh, wrote a book called Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance. It's a great book. encourage you to look at it. She's a professor at the University of uh, Pennsylvania, psychology professor. And basically in her talk, you know, TED Talks are these short little excerpts that kind of drive this really strong point home. And she's talking about the thing that sets successful people apart from those who aren't successful is this unquantifiable quality that she calls grit. And I think we all understand what this is, right? This uh, concept that hard work pays off more than smarts pays off. And, and we, you know, one of the things we try to instill in our students is you need to learn how to work hard. Um, your smarts will only get you so far, and so you need to learn this work ethic, and we want them to do that. We'd, we'd all, I think, understand, and we'd rather have someone who works hard for us rather than someone who's just smart but does nothing. We, we understand that. Uh, so what does this have to do with the text and with our church? I think Paul is going to talk about this idea of training up in godliness, something that he says has a high value for us. He compares it to physical training, which he says has some value, but is not the same value as training in godliness. And I think we get that too. You know, all the sports that are starting up, we had the, the fall sports kickoff last night and all the football and all the stuff that's going on, we understand that training up and physically is an important thing. Ask a coach. They'd rather have a hard worker than someone who's just simply talented because talent takes us only so far. And so over and over in this text today, we're going to read words like devote and immerse and practice, training and toiling, um, striving, Guarding, keeping, these, these kinds of words that require action over long periods of time. They carry with them the connotation of a reward that is at the end of this long period of time. Not an instant gratification, but something that you work and strive for. And so as we consider this, we're going to look at this concept of godliness that Paul is talking about. I think we throw that word around quite a bit, but we need to look at what what is Paul talking about when he says that and what it has to do with our lives as believers, how we should train up in godliness in order to serve uh, our Lord Jesus more fully. At the center of this idea, of course, is the work of Christ who saves us once and for all, relieving us of any condemnation. As with any training, I think it's important for us to say on the outset and throughout, actually, there's always the likelihood of setbacks and letdowns. So we'll be comforted by this text with the knowledge that in Christ there is no condemnation, there is no guilt. So we'll consider three main ideas in the text. First of all, what is godliness? How do we obtain it? And then how do we 
persevere in that. So with that, I'm going to read the text. Let's stand together as I read from God's Word. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 16. It says this, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourselves for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the, believer, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which has been given to you, uh, which has, was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourselves in them, or yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So again, lots of strong words, lots of commandments, lots of uh, imperative type words in this text. Uh, just a little bit of a background first here. Verse 6 says, if you put these things before the brothers. Verse 11 says, command and teach these things. So what is Paul talking about, these things? There's a lot of debate here, uh, but I think it's fairly simple. There's no reason really to debate that. Paul is talking about what? This letter. Right, that he's giving, that he's written to Timothy. Uh, this whole, in, this whole of instruction that he's given to Timothy concerning the structure and the behavior of the churches. This is important because it's from this that we're going to derive this context of what godliness consists of. Paul actually uses the word godly or godliness quite a bit in this uh, in this text. There are several key themes in the opening chapters of this book and in the closing ones here. And, and Paul is calling Timothy to teach and to command these things to the church in order to train them up in good doctrine. And so I'd say that Paul defines good doctrine as not only what we believe concerning the nature of God, because we see that in this book, but also how we should respond to him and how we should or what he requires of us. You know, the shorter catechism sums that up very well, saying, what is in the word of God? Well, it's, the word of God contains everything that we are to believe concerning him and all that he requires of us. It's fairly simple. I think it's helpful for us to hear that and understand that for those times that we want more than that. We want the word of God to tell us more than those things. We are actually in the 500th year since the Reformation, since the date that Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg Church door. 
and that date is actually approaching us, October 31st, Reformation Day. There's another, hol- uh, another uh, holiday on that date, but it's Reformation Day to me. Um, and you're going to hear a lot more of this uh, in, the t- in the days to come. God's word is sufficient for us when it comes to what we need to know about God and, and as a training manual for us as well, training us up in godliness. So that isn't to say that other books can't be helpful at all. I'm not saying that, but when those other resources start to take over, that's when we're in the wrong. And you, you see that quite a bit, and it's unfortunate. The same can be said of, of other pastors, and I think of, of even myself. When a pastor begins relying on his own wisdom rather than the scriptures, we should be wary of that. How can you tell? Well, the scriptures are be- become a vacant and fleeting thing from his sermons. All right? And so those are the types of things that we should flee from rather than flee to. There are lots of great resources out there for training believers in doctrine, and we should use those, but we should always check those against the scriptures. I think that should go without saying, but unfortunately it does not. And so what are we going to look at first? Well, what is this concept of godliness? We'll look at verse 6 again with me. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and of good doctrine that you have followed. So essentially what we have here is the understanding that if we teach, you know, Timothy is being called to teach. Well, in order to be, uh, to, in order to teach, you have to be taught. And so don't see this as just a, a, a particular instruction to Timothy, but this is instruction for all of us to be taught and to teach these doctrines. We are also to be trained up in these doctrines and in, in, in the faith, the words of the faith. Paul then compares these good doctrines with silly myths. And he has used this uh, same phraseology several times in the book now. Uh, we've talked about what, the, what form these myths might have taken. I think we could easily make those connections with the things that we hear taught uh, in some circles and maybe on television or whatever. We, we all have heard these silly myths concerning Christianity. What is a myth, basically? A myth is something that has just enough truth to it to keep folks coming back to it. It's not so outlandish that it's unbelievable. It has just enough truth that people think, well, maybe that is true. You know, I watched a a documentary recently on uh, Waco, Texas, you know, 1993 with David Koresh. Those people were desperate for truth. And he kept the scriptures in front of them. There was just enough truth to what he was saying to draw them in. But obviously what he said was he was saying was, was not good for them. I mean, look at the results. It wasn't not, was not good for those people. And it was, it was silly myths compared to the teaching of Scripture. Um, it's, you know, there's enough good doctrine there for us to glaze over the garbage that kind of lies beneath it. And I think we're all guilty of that at times. We, we see the sheen of something that looks good, but we have to dig deep in order to find out that there's actually nothing there. Um, but, so instead of that, we are tra- being told to train ourselves up in godliness. You know, having nothing to do with irreverent silly myths, rather train yourselves for godliness. So how can we define that? The word is used quite often for such a small book and it's not used a whole lot anywhere else 
Um, and when it's used, you know, it's used, think, think about what we've learned about in the book so far. We've learned a lot about um, these qualifications for, for teachers. We've learned about outward appearances. You know, think about chapter 2. Uh, people are, you know, we're told how to dress even. And what's, what's the context of given of being dressed? You know, not to be concerned about outward appearances, but be concerned about the godliness inside. Chapter 3, the characteristics of church leadership. Each of those leadership qualities in chapter 3 for the elders and deacons are what? They are inward qualities, but are they simply inward qualities? If an elder is is called to be above reproach, what does that mean? What does that idea denote? Well, he's above reproach in character, but that shows to the outside world. You cannot judge someone above reproach without their actions to look at that. And so those qualifications then are a view toward this inward reality that affects the outward appearance, rather by simply starting with the outward appearance. Note that the outward appearance isn't discounted completely. You know, it's what is the elder told to do? He is to be thought well of by others. We don't, you don't want an elder who's not thought well of by the community. You know, the same with deacons. What, are the, what is the deacon told? He who serves well, what does he gain? A good standing for himself. And so these inward qualities affect the outward appearance. So considering... All the many qualities that we have been given concerning the men and women in the church and how they should act, how they should be perceived, I think it's good to define godliness the following way. Godliness is the inward reality and its effect on the outward appearance. It's the inward reality and its effect on the outward appearance. Paul shows us even in the next little little verse there, in verse uh, no, well, verse eight, for while bodily training has some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Bodily training has some value. But what is bodily training in this sense? It's purely outward. It's purely an outward thing, versus that which affects the heart. You know, to think about this in just a very practical sense. Show me someone who mistreats others, who's sneaky in their business dealings. I'll show you someone who has a skewed doctrine. You can't have a good doctrine and also mistreat others. Those two things don't match. If their inner character is flawed, the fruit of that character will also be flawed. You know, Jesus often talked about the fruit on trees and this idea of, you know, the, what is within the man will show itself. Um, you know, out from, from, the, from the heart come the words of a man. Uh, you will know a tree by its fruit. You know, we, we, we are told that our fruit is basically the works that show an inward working. If the tree is dead, it will produce no fruit. If the tree is alive, it will produce good fruit. And people will see that fruit. Um, And so what do we do then when we have character flaws, yet we want our outward appearance to go along with someone who has a better character? Think about this. Have we ever done this? 
Have you ever known something about yourself? Well, this is kind of, I really have trouble with this, but I'm expected to act this particular way. So what do we do in those situations? We fake it. Or as Paul Tripp says, and Paul Tripp's a, a Christian author, he's great, uh, encourage you to read his books. He says that we staple good fruit onto a bad tree. Get the image of taking a piece of fruit and literally stapling it to a tree. You know, take a banana or an apple and like stapling it to the tree. What what is that going to prove? Well, maybe from afar it looks like an apple tree, but if you get up really close, it looks like a mess. I think we can relate with this one way or another. You know, I'll use myself as an example. Um, for years, I've wrestled with uh, anxiety at various levels, uh, from simply just worrying about things too much to an all-encompassing kind of doubt and despair. Knowing that this isn't a desirable trait for a believer, I fake it. I staple calm and easygoing to my tree because that's what people want to see, right? They want to see someone who's calm and easygoing, someone who's a mess, who's worried about the simple little things of life, does not appear to be someone of good inward character, so maybe something's messed up about him. Well... What happens when you staple fruit to a tree? If I took a banana and just stapled it to the tree in my front yard, what's going to happen to that banana? It's going to wither and it's going to decay. It's going to start to look gross. Rather than training up my anxious heart in godliness, I take the instant gratification so that people won't think less of me. What's the result? Think about it. More anxiety. People eventually having to see the real me as opposed to the one that I've put on for so long. And think about it. So what do we do? How do we deal with this issue then when we're trapped in this cycle? We want to try harder, do better. But again, we'll just staple a piece of fruit to the tree and it's going to fall off and decay again. What do we need instead? Real growth. Where does that come from? Well, how do we obtain it? This idea of godliness. Paul talks about that. Look at verse 10. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on a living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Paul says that it's toward this godliness that we toil and And strive. Does this contradict what I just said about not needing to try harder and do better? No. Because our striving isn't about or shouldn't be about earning favor with God or man especially. But toward our own training. My anxiety is something that I've had to work with and to work at. I recognize that this isn't how I should be. And so then I do things that will help with that. I don't beat myself up over it. I don't have to fake it either. I'm anxious because I believe things that aren't true. Isn't that correct? So then what should I do if I'm believing these things that aren't true and those things cause me to be anxious? What should I do? I should find things then that are true. I should read and see those things that are true. Think about any emotion 
that you may struggle with. For me, it's anxiety. For others, it may be anger, fear, regret. Maybe you're disgusted with yourself. The, uh, the, the uh, emotion of shame, sadness, and depression. Consider each one of those things. What lies at the base of each of those conditions that are listed? Think about it again. Anger, fear, regret, shame, sadness. What is at the base of each one of those things? A lie. What is the lie of anger? That you're in control and that you have to act out in order to retain that. What is the lie of fear? The lie of fear is that no one's in control. Regret that your past defines you. Shame that you're broken and you can't be fixed. Sadness that our current state is the same as our eternal state. Where do we learn truth that counter that counteract these lies? That prove these lies wrong? Do we learn it from the world? No. The world tells us that these lies are okay, that there's, they're not wrong. We learn from the word of God that these are lies. It cuts through every single lie right to the heart, and it pierces to our very souls, the writer of Hebrews tells us. It's the only thing that actually lays us bare. It completely exposes the real truth about who we are. And what else does it say? Even though these things are true about us, Jesus came to save, and we put our hope in him. Can you imagine something so true and wonderful that it lays us completely bare on one side, but on the other side it tells us, you are forgiven of that. That is hope. That is truth. And so what is Paul instructing us then that growth in godliness is? Don't believe the lie. What does he tell Timothy? Look at verse 12. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set set the believers an example in speech and conduct in love and faith in purity. I mean, this is used a lot in youth groups, um, but Timothy wasn't a teen. But there's a lot of truth here. Timothy was probably being despised because he was a younger man. Paul said, no, don't let this happen. It's not true. Set your eyes on God instead. It's what's on the inside of you that counts. Conduct, love, faith, purity. What does he tell us in verse 13? How can we combat these lies? Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching, Do not neglect the gift that you have. That's what he says to Timothy. Verse 15. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that you may see progress. Why? So that others also may see this. Not again, not so that we're rewarded or judged. We're not, look, it's not a positive, negative thing. We're not trying to earn favor with men, but so that God might be glorified. We aren't seeking favor. We are seeking godliness. And in verse 16, he says, keep a close watch on yourself. 
persist in this, for by doing so you will save yourself and others. What does that mean? Well, that people will see the work of God in us with God glorified. Obviously not a salvation that leads to eternal life. We know that Jesus Christ alone does that. But a salvation that leads us to perseverance in godliness. For me to not have another anxious day in my life would be salvation to me. And persisting in godliness is what is going to have, that that's going to take. And it, again, not salvation that leads to an eternal life. I have that because of what Jesus did, not because of my lack of anxiety on a good day. But it's the salvation that leads to the abundant life today. And so then how do we persevere in this? We keep the truth in front of us. We always remember why we strive and toil, why we train ourselves up in godliness. I mean, look at verse 10 again. Our hope is set on a living God. We profess that from the Heidelberg this morning. He is at the right hand of the Father right now interceding on our behalf. Jesus Christ, the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Now, the wording of that might bother us a little bit, of all people, especially those who believe. You know, if we, if we take that verse and we just use that one verse, we might be drift off into some sort of universalism. But we know that this verse isn't teaching that. Why? Because Scripture doesn't teach that. We know that Jesus came to save his people from their sins and that these people represented of all the different kinds of people on the earth, slave and free, man, woman, Jew, Gentile. The same is true then, the same is true today. He came to save his people, and they will be saved by belief in him. And so this is the hope that we have. And our object then is our struggle, our, our object is Jesus Christ as we struggle toward godliness. That we might finish the race strong and continue on so that the Lord might be glorified. It requires a joint effort as well, right? These instructions are not only to be taught by us, but we are, and, but we are to be taught by them. We are to do this for one another. That's why we meet together, right? This sort of thing doesn't happen outside the church. It happens inside the church. It happens in the growing body of Christ. Obviously, personal worship has its value, but even it only has value within the context of the local church. It's much easier to train towards something as a group rather than solo. Like we all understand this as well. The best athletes in the world have trainers that push them. We need the same thing in the church. That is the function that we serve for one another. And so going back, as a conclusion, going back to our introduction on grit, our training in godliness then will require grit on our part. Christ has done the work of salvation. Again, he continues to work for us. We're not doing the ultimate work of salvation. And he is even working on our behalf for our godliness, even against us sometimes, 
even against our own wishes to remain stagnant in our faith, he is working against us in spite of us to grow us up in him. However, what are we instructed to do? We are instructed to work towards that end as well. And that is where grit is required. On our worst days, on our most anxious days, when we're afraid, when we're sad, we should move towards the goal, and that goal is Jesus Christ. We may want to take the easy route, to simply take some fruit and staple it to appear that we have the right training, to appear that we are a godly person, even though we struggle. However, it will always show itself to be false, and I think we know that. It will start to shrivel up. It will start to decay. So it's the long haul. It's the day in and day out of training. It's the worship services. It's the Bible readings, the prayer with and for the saints, the works of service that we do, the admonishing, the encouraging one another. These are the things that are going to pay dividends towards the abundant life today that we might grow in godliness. Jesus is the Savior of the world. He has secured our ticket to glory with his death and resurrection. So let us then toil and strive toward godliness because our, our hope is set on him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, we struggle with this because... I speak for myself, see this as an impossible goal sometimes. I see myself as far from godly. But Lord, you are at work. You are the one who takes dead men and calls them to life. And so Lord, you can work godliness in us. And you are working godliness in us. So Lord, then help us to work toward that end as well, to toil and strive as we set our gaze upon you, the author and the finisher of our faith. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.